Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. And we're off! And here we are. It's another episode of um, uh, Fan Club from the ever-decamping Camp Covid. Yeah, there's uh, a few people left on the camp, Nick. People, it's like the last days of Glastonbury, um, or... Um, well, the last days of Glasson was really the last day of... There's always a bunch of people that decide to stay for an extra week. Um, Probably with people trying to clear up around them. Yeah, and people whose tents have been nicked around them and they're just lying there on the ground sheet. Uh, that's very much what, you know, uh, newspapers, uh, rubbish, trash, and, uh, and, and human feces, as far as the eye can see. Uh, but me and you, we've still got our our tent up and we're still uh, very much observing uh, social distancing regulations. We are. We're more than two metres away from each much other. More. Uh, I'm, I'm, not only that, I am two metres away from my actual computer. So if I'm a bit, if I'm a bit quiet, then that'll be why. Uh, no. you, can never be, you can never be too careful, Nat. You can never be too careful. True. It could come through the computers. Well, you, I think you can be too careful. Um, it's a fine line. We don't know whether... Well, I don't know what's going on. Let's not talk about... Let's not talk about that. Um, so, um, how have you... Oh, first rule of... My name's Nick. <laughs> my name's Nathaniel Maker. After all these years, it's been years now, two and a half, two and a bit years, still haven't quite got used to how to start a show. No. Uh, so if anyone's got any tips, keep them to yourself, because I'm quite happy with the way things are. Um, I wouldn't have it any other way this is me uh this is uh, this is me talking to the show just as you are fan club just as you are which is obviously a quote from one of the all-time best rom-coms Bridget Jones's diary uh and that's Mark Darcy saying just as you are to anyone Bridget Jones that's right do you like Bridget Jones's diary um I do oh I did I do I did mm. It falls into one of them, kind, it's kind of like one of those twee sort of fairy tale, this is what, like a Richard Curtis sort of uh, rom-com thing. Um, so I do, I, yeah, I like it in theory, but... Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't dislike the genre, but I, I like very few within the genre. What you know, genre? That very Richard curtis twee British one. Like, yeah. I really like Four Weddings and a Funeral. Love it. Nothing is as good as it. Um, I think I think something like Love Actually doesn't work, but I think some of the stories within it kind of do. But as a whole, it doesn't work at all. But they're not complete stories, are they? They're highlights. Yeah. It's like um, it's like oh, I've got an idea. I've got ideas for ten uh, ten romantic comedies. I put, I, do you know what? I'm not even going to bother talking about it. I hate Love Actually. I think it's, I think it's, yeah, anyway. Uh, first rule of fan club, tell your friends about fan My name's Nick, this is... Daniel Metcalf. You're listening to Nick and... Daniel Metcalf's. Fan club. Um, first rule of fan club is, tell your friends about fan club. Second rule of fan club is... Please, please, for the love of God, tell your friends. Yeah. We had a bit of bad news this morning, didn't we? Terrible bit. news. Last week, we were so happy that we were number 31 in the charts of Malta. Only to come in excitedly trying to get an update on where we might be placed this week. How many how many spaces we've climbed, if anything? Yeah. And uh, we found out that we're 
um, we're back up to 149. 149. That's after I went to the trouble of saying, we love Malta. We oh, we love Malta. And I found the flag, the Maltese flag on uh, on my emojis, and I posted that, and I, I, tw- I tweeted that. And, um, yeah, it seems to have done nothing but bad for us. So <laughs> maybe we should have igno- ignored them like last time, like like usual, mm. you know, like, like we ignore all of our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm absolutely gutted about it. You only need to listen back to last week's episode to uh, remember exactly how thrilled I was that we were 31 in any charts, but uh, I thought maybe we'd have broken the top 30 We've had a couple of really good, a couple. We've had some absolutely amazing shows recently. Just been getting better and better. And I'm absolutely heartbroken, crestfallen. As good as I felt last week, I'm the opposite this week. Um, Natalie's trying to cheer us up by saying we're loved in Estonia. But by love, she means 129. Which is only 20, 20 places higher than Malta. And it's all about Malta. It's all about the Maltese listenership. Mm. And she hasn't even given us a context. She hasn't even given us a context this time. At least last time we knew that we were beating John Robbins, a former uh, fan club club member. Um, But uh, now I don't don't even want to know who we're before or behind. I just feel like the world's gone gone even crazier. Uh, There's so much going on in the world, and this seems to be the craziest thing of all. Mm. Uh, Dropping 100... And 18 points on the Maltese iTunes chart. This is some of the worst news in the world stage today, I think. Absolutely devastated. Devoed, mate. <laughs> Devoed. Um, so it's all right. Anyway, so this week I watched uh, Music and Lyrics talking about Hugh Grant. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what a movie. Love it. I, I, think be- I, I think I spoke to you about it before. Yeah. And I think I like it more than you as well. I think it's a much better... I've, I've seen it two or three times, and I'm, it, I always enjoy it. I think that um, I think that I enjoy it as much as you do, Matt. But I also am of the opinion that it's a B-movie. Um, yeah. And, and I also, when you go through it, there's not one scene that you couldn't improve. Yeah, you know, probably. there's literally... Every time you... Uh, this is the, right. Okay, so I'll give you an example. There's a scene near the beginning when uh, Drew Barrymore comes round to uh, water his plants, right? And she puts her bag on his piano, and he picks up the bag because he doesn't want to scratch the piano. Then she puts her coat on the piano, and he picks up her coat. And then she puts her like plant equipment down on the piano, and he picks up her plant equipment. And it's like a running gag where every time she puts anything on the piano, he picks it up. And then later on, there's a scene where she does the same thing and he picks it all up. And then he goes down to sit behind the piano and then she leans on the piano. And then you just think, well, he would have a problem with her leaning on the piano, but they just haven't done anything with that. So it's just kind of like little things where you go, well, you can improve that there, you can improve that there. It's really weird that uh, Kirsten... Uh, what's her name? Kirsten Stewart? Kirsten, yeah, actually, no, that's, the, that's not, is it? That's Twilight. Yeah, what's, yeah I know exactly what you mean. Third Rock from the Sun. Third Rock from the Sun, right? And then you've also got Lou Garrett from Everybody Loves Raymond. You're absolutely right to point out that it's a B-movie romantic comedy. You've got these... You've got these... um, um, They haven't... it's, it's It's like a TV movie, right? Where they've cast it 
with with well-known people, but they've cast it with well-known people off the telly. Mm -hmm. And so you're kind of like, they're going, yeah, but what you wanted was you wanted to get a well-known, you wanted to get maybe like a Paul Giamatti in there as his uh, agent, rather than, and they've gone, well, Lou Garrett's got a, like a, a name he's in everybody loves Raymond everybody's familiar with him so we'll put him in and you're just like a, yeah but it's kind of like you've you could have cast uh you could have made it more cinematic mm -hmm. and I just think that the whole film kind of like so I I think that it's uh, it's either it's a bad film that is elevated by the the music mm. and the performances or it's a good film that is sort of in the wrong hands and uh, it's downgraded slightly. But um, it's uh, I, if you look at something like the the the, uh, the pinnacle of the genre, something like When Harry Met Sally, that is a movie, mm -hmm. right? And it's filled with movie stars or people that you um, associate with cinema. And it's just an absolutely outstanding, timeless movie. Whereas, you know, you've got uh, Bruno Kirby, Carrie Fisher. Um, uh, it's a Rob Reiner film. Um, you've got uh, Billy Crystal, uh, Meg Ryan. It's just sort of like, it's like this beautiful New York romantic comedy. It feels cinematic, right? Um, and... Uh, and then you've got this, which feels kind of like almost like a time capsule where you go, well, Third Drop from the Sun and Everybody Loves Raymond were big sitcoms around that time. And so they've got the people from them in it. But it feels sort of like it doesn't feel timeless. Um, and the woman that they got to uh, play, the Christina Aguilera type character, she's kind of like been directed to be kind of like uh, personality less. And, and it's also sort of like that character is personally in charge of picking the song that's going to uh, instigate her big sort of like change in direction. And you go, well, even someone that doesn't know anything about the music industry knows that Britney Spears doesn't pick her own songs. You know, people are, you know, she might have a say in it, but there's a whole team of people that are in charge of, uh, of 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 debating because uh, everyone's careers, are, you know, Britney Spears is basically responsible for a village at least of uh, a village full of people's income. You know, it's an industry. Britney Spears isn't just a person. She's not just a personality. She's got this huge um, kind of ensemble of people that all rely on her success. So there's a scene where Hugh Grant basically. I think he's got something like four hours to record, write and record a song. They spend a week writing it and he's got four hours to record it. And, um, uh, and the song is great, but he says at some point in the film that he hasn't written or made a piece of music in 10 years, right? Which I think the film was early 2000s. So this is early 90s. He hasn't written a song since then, right? And then in four hours... He gets his uh, home computer and he does all of the instruments. He does bass, piano, drums, uh, guitar. Uh, he sings his uh, vocals. I can even get my head around the fact that they're singing their vocals together and 
they're just doing it all in one take. But what I can't get around my, my head around is the fact that he does every instrument, even though he hasn't recorded any music in 10 years, with new technology that he <laughs> wouldn't be familiar with. He does it all in four hours, which is impossible. It would take a day at least, right? And then they deliver it. And, um, and it's just little things like that where you just like go, right, well, that is out of the realms of believability. They deliver it. They deliver it with headphones, and then she listens to it on headphones outside a helicopter. She decides right then and there that that is going to be the song that she's going to relaunch her career with. And you go, yeah, but they're all tiny little problems that make you go, this film is sort of bullshit. But, you know, and you might not be immediately aware of them when you're watching it, but they're subconsciously registering with you, where you go, well, that's bullshit, and that's bullshit, and that's bullshit. And then, um, and it's kind of like you go... Let's just say, because basically it's about Wham, right? So Hugh Grant is basically playing Andrew Ridgely and the other guy is playing George Michael, right? And the other guy is in it at the beginning. And it's kind of like, wouldn't it have made more sense for him to be one of the other people competing to write a song? Yes. For the George Michael character to be one of the other characters competing to write a song and then Andrew, Andrew Ridgely, uh, the... Hugh Grant character is also competing and then he Hugh Grant wins it's like there's this spectacular moment at the end where basically let's because it's set in early 2000s so it's Britney Spears at her height Christina Aguilera at her height right and she comes out in front of all of her audience and she goes ladies and gentlemen Andrew Ridgely and the audience go mental for it right like Andrew Ridgely's on stage unbelievable right then he does like a five-minute solo song where Christine Aguilera is off the stage and the audience are enwrapped by it, right? And then uh, she comes back out and they do a duet and you're just like going, well, none of this... You haven't even set up a universe where this rings true on... Do you know what I mean? No. But Hugh Grant is incredible in it, right? Uh, Drew Barrymore, they use almost like as well as you can use Drew Barrymore in any project. She's absolutely gorgeous in it. She's charming. Uh, she's, she's great. She elevates the material. And then you've got the songs, and the songs are fake songs that work as... Uh, I sing those songs all the time, walking around the house. Um, and I just think that you've got a few things that elevate this into... into I love this film more than it really sort of... The elements that are good, I love it as as much as you can love something. Maybe that's... Maybe, I think you're probably right, actually. And I think that the thing I like about it is how I really buy into Hugh Grant as Andrew Ridgely in it. And I like the way that his career feels like he's not doing super badly. He's still earning a sort of decent living. But it's that, it's, I think usually when you see someone who's a bit like a failed pop star you have them almost sort of destitute instead of this guy who's got this sort of songwriting money. He's doing fine, but he's not, he's not on top anymore. And the gigs he are doing are like in these in like fun fairs and things and shopping centres, and you get the impression, yeah, that rings true to me. But you're right in that actually that is the sort of thing, the only bit of it that does ring true and all the other elements are a bit more sort of fantasy-ish. Yeah, the fact that he... <laughs> I just the fact that he puts that song together in such a short amount of time. It's one of my favourite sequences. But when I rewatched it, you just like, how long did he have? 
it's something like four, it might even be three hours, and he puts this song together, and you go, it's such a short amount of time. Um, uh, they're sort of like, when Drew Barrymore starts singing, Hugh Grant does this sort of like surprised face, and then he sort of like encourages her to sing while they're performing. It's not like a take one, take two. They just knock it out of the park in one go. And, it's, and, and I get that there's a suspension of disbelief, but there's so many tiny little elements that build up in the film where you just go, you almost have to kind of like accept it as an alternate reality to the world that everyone that's watching this film is living in. Yeah. Because it's just, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. But, and I think that, I can't remember who directed it. Um, is it Mark Lawrence, I think, isn't that? Yeah, right. So he did uh, Miss Congeniality, um, which he worked with Sandra Bullock on. Then he did Two Weeks Notice, which was a Sandra Bullock vehicle that Hugh Grant mm-hmm. came in to be her love interest. I think they got on so well that basically that was the formula. We talked about this before, but the Hugh Grant formula that goes all the way back to Four Weddings and a Funeral is get Hugh Grant and put him with an American female lead. So you've got Andy McDowell, Julianne Moore, nine weeks, nine months. Uh, oh, that was a quick pregnancy. Uh, so you've got Julianne Moore, uh, you've got Julia Roberts, um, uh, then you've got Drew Barrymore, uh, Sandra Bullock. So I think he did... I think he did two weeks' notice for Sandra Bullock. They got on really well, and then they went on to do uh, music and lyrics, Hugh Grant and Drew Barrymore. Did you hear about the Morgans, which was Hugh Grant and Sarah Jessica Parker? Mm-hmm. And then they did the rewrite, which was Hugh Grant and Marissa Tomei. And it's kind of like this formula that works, but it's the same like uh, uh, creative team that do all these things. And the guys obviously get on really well, but they're all sort of like... A significant Hugh Grant is always good in them, and they're always a nice idea. But they always feel like they're about, ironically, like a couple of rewrites away from being kind of like, yeah, in a different league. Yeah, the rewrites, the other one I really like of those two weeks' notice, I think, is a bit weak. I think I don't, I think two weeks' notice is, um, it's a really weird film because because you think you know what the film is going in, right. So uh, Sandra Bullock plays an um, environmental lawyer and uh, Hugh Grant plays this kind of like um, uh, multi-corporate mogul uh, who doesn't really care about the environment. Uh, she goes to work for him undercover. Uh, or maybe it's not even undercover. She goes to work for him. They fall in love. And then she hands in her two weeks' notice and he realises that he's going to lose her. And so he's got to spend two weeks changing his life so that uh, he can kind of win her back, right? That's what you think it is. But that element of it is such a small element. Yeah. There's so much to get to that point. It's like they set up. She's employed before. Like, it's not she's working with him when the film starts. You get to have this thing where he employs her within the first act. And then the, the sort of middle act is them working together. And, like, the third act is basically the two weeks' notice element of it. Yeah. And it's kind of like, no, that's, that's what you've called the film. Hmm. So that should literally be... I mean, it writes itself. That should be kind of like what the, what the entire plot of the film is. It's that she's handing in her notice. So to make her an environmental lawyer is kind of like almost a red herring because you go, well, she should be an employee already and something happens and then he goes 
uh, and, and then something happens to make her quit, and then that is your act one, and then act two is kind of like uh, the give and take of their relationship and him and, and the actual two weeks going, and then the third act is her him trying to win her back, but it's not, it doesn't work like that. It's kind of like, and it's also quite bizarre because there's that sequence when they're in a traffic jam on the freeway, and Sandra Bullock really needs a shit. <laughs> so. Uh, and it's just weird because she's just like you've done a because not that obviously women go for a shit, but you've done this in a in a Sandra Bullock romantic comedy where there's like a ten minute sequence where Hugh Grant is trying to find somewhere for Sandra Bullock to do a shit. It sort of becomes a bit dumb and dumber. It's something like a, Fer- a Farrelly Brothers bit in a in a Sandra Bullock movie. Well, the music there's a music cue where they're playing Taking Care of Business. <laughs> and it's Sandra Bullock, and then and eventually they find a Winnebago for Sandra Bullock to go for a shit in. And it's just kind of like you go, that's, that's weird that, that even, it's weird that that's even in a film. The it's, rewrite is basically a remake of music and lyrics. Yeah. Um, it's like now he's a Hollywood screenwriter who's had one big movie 20 years ago and has to try and re, and has to join a college because that's the only job he can get, teaching screenwriting. Yeah. I think that they're quite. I think they're cheap and cheerful, mm. is what I would call these films. Where, uh, where I, w- I wouldn't even probably say that if you. I think that there's something about Four Winds and a Funeral that sort of works. Yeah. Uh, which doesn't sort of fall apart when it comes to plot. It's sort of like, whereas maybe the others are kind of like. The, well, music and lyrics feels like it's written by a guy that really doesn't understand the, mu- the music industry, and. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just, like, I would say that there's one thing in every single scene that that raises a red flag. And then by the end of it, I mean, by the end of the film, I was crying. I think that that song that he sings to her at the piano is just, um, oh, don't write me off just yet. Mm-hmm. It's clever because it's about a woman that's, write, that's a writer. So she writes lyrics. And so the title is kind of like, connected to the film but also it's just got all of the lyrics work on their own but they also reference plot points in the movie and it just feels like it really ties the movie together and it's just a bit it was by um fountains of wayne that died at the beginning of covid um he did all the music for um uh uh that tom hanks one that thing you do um, uh, what was his name again? Adam Schlesinger. Yeah, and um, yeah, and the, uh, just the songs. I loved Fountains of Wayne, but the song. And we've already talked about this during lockdown, but I watched it this week, and I was just in tears. But it also really did sort of like. What I find interesting is I've never been able to pinpoint what it is that I. Because I, I want to love it. Uh, uh, unconditionally yeah. but there are things that it's kind of like it's like um it's sort of like a bit jagged and when you watch it little threads get caught and you're just like but what about but what and it's everything from the casting to the writing to uh, the subject matter that all kind of a, a sort of real truth about it that i think i feel this way about lots of films is that in a way it really isn't a great movie but it's so much better than it needed to be. It's so much better than you're expecting. 
there's like certain things about it that elevate it from what it is. And I think I mean, the movies I love are basically that. You could you could have cast it with a pre-fame Chris Pine and uh, the, one of the Olsen twins, or Lindsay Lohan. Mm. I think they were in New York Minute together. Or, no, that was the Olsen twins. There was one film with Chris Pine and Lindsay Lohan, and it was like one of those early 2000s films. And you could have cast it with those people, and it would, and you'd have just gone, "This is, uh, this is a shit movie." But you've cast it with two A-listers, and the music is incredible, and it elevates something way beyond what it has, what it really deserves. And um, I just. I just think Hugh Grant is really funny in the film. Drew Barrymore is incredible in it. I mean, I mean I'm really gushing over it because I love it so much. Had the, um, had the music not been good, had the music just been awful, the film would have fallen apart as well. It just seemed yeah. awful. Yeah, and it's an interesting sort of like left-field choice to get Adam Schlesinger to do it. But also, um, he'd already done... Uh, that thing you do, and that thing you do is, like, as we said before, it's like one of the best 60s songs that was written in the 90s. Mm. It's just, it sounds exactly period perfect. And, um, yeah, I just, yeah, anyway, I love, I love me, I watched that this week, and I, I laughed all the way through it, uh, and I cried all the way through it, and I finally got a little bit closer to what it is that I find a bit odd about it. It's certainly the best out of all of their team-ups. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you but I think it's a fairly low bar because I would also say the rewrite. I did. Pro I probably enjoy that the second most. But I mean, and I would say probably. Did you hear about the Morgans? Is the worst. I've not seen. Did you hear about the Morgans? I mean, it's him and Sarah Jessica Parker on a witness relocation program, and it's kind of like it's it's yeah, it's lightweight. It feels like Hugh Grant works with Mark Lawrence. He works with. Richard Curtis, and he works with uh, Paul and Chris Whites, the guys that did American Pie. Yeah, and Guy Ritchie now. Guy Ritchie. And, um, and the only other person I think I've added to that recently is Stephen Frears that did um, A Fairy English Scandal on TV, and he also did the um, Florence Foster Jenkins. And it feels like he... Hugh Grant seems to only work with a real narrow scope of people. Like, he works with someone, and if he gets on with them, he'll do films with them. But that seems to be his criteria for picking movies. Well, I think he's, um, he's, he's, like a, he's a movie star, which I think... Well, I mean, I was going to say... I don't know how much of it... I, and I don't mean this as an, as an insult. I, I would say that he's probably got a fairly limited range. Mm. But within that range he's incredible and I think that you know obviously he works with uh, Richard Curtis and Richard Curtis made the mould of what Hugh Grant has spent the rest of his career fighting against so when he did About a Boy that was after Bridget Jones wasn't it and yeah. so he was like a scumbag in British Jones so that's a and so with each so when he works with people he's not kind of like coming out of his wheelhouse but he sort of like does um he does variations on that on that persona, but then, I mean, he is outstanding in Paddington too. Yeah, just I mean, he's great. And when he pops up in Man from Uncle, 
you're just so delighted to see him in... He's in an action movie, do you know what I mean? And you're so delighted to see him. I would say the only film that he was completely... And you can tell... I think it's the film's fault, really, rather than he was miscast, because you can tell what they were going for. But it was American Dreams. Do you remember that? Yes. Bizarre. Which was the American pop idol Taliban comedy by Chris, Chris Wrights and... He plays sort of like a Simon Cowell character. And, and I, can, I can understand why they've cast him as that character. But the film is so unfocused and so bizarre. It's got like four plot threads. It's bonkers. It's bonkers. I hadn't seen it till 18 months ago or something. And it was genuinely... It's an it's a insane film of what it's trying to do. It's like a sort of satire on both um, sort of... Bush era, George W. Bush era politics. Well, Dennis Quaid, Dennis Quaid is basically playing George W. Bush. Yeah. And um, uh, Willem Dafoe is Dick Cheney. I forgot who's in it. And it's, it's got, basically, the whole film starts like it's sort of pop idol auditions, and then it cuts, I think, to something it just says, meanwhile, the Taliban, or something, you go, I beg your pardon? It's so, it's so, yeah, it's so unfocused. And so, this huge satire into this quite small film. So the plot is that you've got uh, uh, American Idol and um, the President of the United States is going to be a guest judge on American Idol. In a nutshell, this is what the... the, uh, George W. Bush is going to be a guest judge on American Idol and the Taliban decide that the best way that they can... Uh, blow up the President of the United States is by getting one of them to enter American Idol and get to the final. Final. Uh, at which point they're going to uh, 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 set off uh, a, a bomb that's strapped to them, uh, kill themselves on uh, the big <laughs> on national TV on the most watched show. Um, in a lightweight comedy. As well, it's like a, a lightweight comedy that wants to be a sort of hard satire. It wants to be Wag the Dog, but it's gone via kind of um, uh, Dude, Where's My Car? It's kind of like this really... It's so weird. It's sort of like... It's, it's simultaneously... It's trying to be highbrow, but it is also very lowbrow. And then it's just... It's, it's crazy. You've got Mandy Moore in it, who's playing this really unlikable um, sort of like teen, uh, uh, teen protégé. Uh, it's got Chris Klein in it, who's playing this ex-injured uh, survivor of the uh, war in Afghanistan. So he's a subplot. She's a subplot. Um, Hugh Grant playing a guy that basically is miserable with his own life, but is one of the biggest stars on TV. He's a subplot. You've got the Taliban. They're a subplot. You've got George W. Bush. He's a subplot. Uh, you've got everything that's going on with his wife and Dick Cheney. That's another... Do you know what I mean? And it's just kind of like this... Uh, oh, the, the plot is that, um, that George W. Bush has never read a newspaper. He's not George W. Bush in the film. Just as Hugh Grant doesn't play Andrew Ridgely, right? But that's... They're playing, like, archetypes that yeah. we're familiar with, right? And, uh, yeah, it's just... It's, American Dreams, with a Z, has got to be, I think... I went to... Because my dad loves Hugh Grant, so we go and see... Hugh Grant, we went to see American Dreams at the cinema, me and my dad did. And I just think we left, because it's just sort of like, it doesn't give you what you're looking for from like a, 
uh, Hugh Grant film. It's not feel good. It makes you feel dirty and depressed when you leave. It's kind of like so bleak. It's got a real horrible sort of like almost mean-spirited ending. Yeah. Um, it's just really, I think cynical is the word. It's just this oh, yeah. cynical film. Yes, it really is. It really it leaves is. such a bad taste in your mouth. It's just kind of like, oh, and I know it's obviously, it's called American Dreams. They're taking the piss out of the American dream. But it's just, oh, I mean, maybe it's worth a rewatch. Just to, I, mean, I was about to say, yeah, I think it's a totally baffling film, but partly because it's baffling, I've seen it twice. I think I've seen it two or three times, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but only because I can't get my head around it, and I'm just like, did it really end like that? Is that really the punchline of the film? It's just bizarre. Yeah. What a movie. But I love, uh, yeah, I love Hugh Grant, uh, and I always will. Paddington okay. um, 2 was his career best. Yeah, and to have that and a very English scandal within, like, two or three months of each other, I think is great. So I didn't see a very English scandal, so what was that? It's like, um, um, it's a re-telling, it's a telling of the Jeremy Thorpe scandal, which was like a British political thing that happened before I was born, and not knowing the story at all, that when you watch it, it feels like you're watching something that just cannot be true. It's right. so like, and the tone of it plays like that. It's played almost like farce, because it's like, well, none of this happened. And the more you, and it's just that everything happened the way that it presents. But because it's such a mad thing, the tone of it is played up to almost like, um, almost like parody, or it's slightly. The tone of it's quite ridiculous, except that it all happened in the way that it happened. Right. That plays out this sort of, you know, essentially this big political scandal that happened in the UK government. But it seems so kind of far fetched and gets more so as it goes along, but plays it all up for kind of like laughs because it's so, because the story is so crazy. So was it a film or is it a, a TV? It's TV, three one hours. But again, it's you, Grant, putting in a real shift. I think he does that thing where you're so used to him being sort of self-deprecating at how bad he's at acting that often when you see these things, you almost forget that he is actually really good, you know? Well, I think now he's older. He's, yeah. he's gone, right, well, um, I'm, I'm an actor now. I'm a character actor. And he's, he's going into, like, his character actor phase, yeah, which I think is really exciting because I love all of his romantic comedies. I love them. But um, I find it much more interesting now because I think that he's got, like, a few sort of, like, tentpole films uh, in, in, that, uh, in that genre where you go, that's, that's one I'll rewatch, that's one I'll rewatch. You know, I would probably say that, out of all of them, oddly, because it doesn't have that Richard Curtis factor. Um, not that I've got anything particularly against Richard Curtis, but it doesn't have that Richard Curtis factor. So I'd probably say that Music and Lyrics is my favourite Hugh Grant film, but because I just think it's such a... Uh, he, my favourite one of his romantic comedies. But um, Very rewatchable film. Yeah, rewatchable. It's short as well. And the song's just like... I mean, if you have not seen it, watch Music and Lyrics. It's great. Um... But then when he pops up in stuff like uh, Man From U.N.C.L.E., it's just so, uh, you're just like, oh, great. I haven't seen The Gentleman, but um, uh, it's, you know, it's on my list. And I think that he's probably the reason why I want to watch it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I think because he was in it. We need to play a song. Yes. So let's play that, play that song. Uh, 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 song Man. <laughs> 
Luke Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. And we're back! Um, so, um, so what have you seen this week, Nat? Um, I have seen two Steven Spielberg films, two big sort of blockbuster films from different eras. I have seen E.T., The Extraterrestrial, if you've heard of it. Um, I think, yeah, that's uh, the one where they go to McDonald's and do a dance, right? That's right. And I've seen uh, uh, The Adventures of Tintin, Secret of the Unicorn. Hmm, okay. Yes. Well, yes. Okay. I I really like uh, Adventures of Tintin, and I think I like it because I expected to hate it when it came out. I was so against the whole thing of it. Don't not a big fan of motion capture or anything like that. I but I love Tintin, and I wasn't even going to watch it. And I I ended up coming across it once when I was doing a gig somewhere, and um, and I realised that the hotel had like cable and it had free. It had like you could watch the movies on it for free, and that was one of them. And I started watching it, and I could only get like about about ten minutes into it before like the interference kind of cut it off. And I was like, this was like. I was like, oh, that looked a lot better than I imagined. And I've since seen it, and I think it's just really impressive. I really like the tone of it. It feels like the closest to something like um, Indiana Jones that um, Spielberg. Spielberg's done. Um, and feels has that sort of sense of being like a big blockbuster, and a, like a better blockbuster than a lot of the more recent ones he's done. Mm. Um, and also really impressed with, I think this takes it away. So I guess in some ways... One of the things with motion capture is it's not really like a movie. It's like a whole other thing because it makes a whole point of... I think Spielberg really takes advantage of using that format because it just does all these shots, which are just impossible. You look at them and you go, you couldn't get a camera to do that. And you can make it go anywhere. It feels like real 360 sort of filmmaking and just lots of things happening where it just feels like... It feels like you're watching something impossible because you're just essentially watching a computer-generated image. Yeah. It's interesting that a lot of people that do that, even people that do more sort of classical animation or CGI animation, don't think of it that way. You don't think of it as a tool where, you know, it's almost that often what's being, they're trying to recreate a cinematic experience. Like the point, even things like Wally go to the point of doing things like camera flare on, it's almost like they're trying to make it look like cinema. Yeah, they, they filmed it. Like, it's uh, they've used cameras and stuff, yeah. Whereas Tintin feels like it's just abandons that idea and really embraces this sort of technology. I know there's that huge single-shot sequence where he's going through... Is, it, is, is there, like, a town that's getting exploded with water? And he's on the bike, on the motorbike. Right, bike yeah. Explodes and he's just holding the uh, handlebars, and then the handlebars become, like, a... A zip wire. That's right. And, sort of go, and the camera follows him everywhere. Yeah. It's just this sort of huge sort of set piece. Yeah. And it's funny. It's like, it's, it's just another example of using computer technology to do something which feels impressive in a way that so often it feels like it just, you know, there's no magic in it because you go, oh, right, yeah. It's, well, it's sort of like um, Robert Zemeckis had done some motion capture stuff and it's pretty... I mean, I saw Polar Express for the first time this Christmas, and I hated it. And um, and then it's like Spielberg, who doesn't do motion capture, just came along and he just did like, oh, this is my motion capture. And it's so much better than 
what someone that's developed the technology managed to do. So you just like go, he is kind of like, well, you know, he's the greatest living film director of all time, but living. So not the, maybe not the greatest dead film director of all time. But I saw, when did I see Tintin? I saw Tintin at the cinema. So I did a gig in Herefordshire where my train broke down. Um, and I got to the venue 20 minutes or maybe half an hour after I was meant to have been on stage. I came straight off the train into the venue, onto the stage. The audience were... I don't think it was a particularly awful gig, but I spent most of the time dealing with drunk audience members. And then I had stayed in a bed and breakfast. Um, I got up at 10 o'clock. I had to leave the bed and breakfast at 10 o'clock and go over to Lincolnshire. Uh, when I came downstairs, the woman at the bed and breakfast said, Oh! Good afternoon! And it was 10am, right? And I'd been gigging till midnight, right? And then I'd got in. I probably got to bed about one, maybe read something or watched some telly. You know, it, was like, it wasn't ridiculous, right? So then I had to go to Lincolnshire. I got to Lincolnshire about, like, midday or whatever time I got there. And then I was sort of, like, stranded because the venue wasn't open. I wasn't allowed into my hotel. And so I ended up watching... Tower Heist. I went into the cinema and I had my guitar with me and they were like, you're not allowed to take that into the cinema. It's just like, why? Because you think... Hang on, which one is Tower Heist? That's the Eddie Murphy's big comeback, which was really disappointing. It's got Ben Stiller. It was originally meant to be like an all-black cast. It was meant to be like Bernie Mac, Chris Rock, Chris Tucker... Uh, Eddie Murphy. It was going to be like this incredible kind of like collection of all of like the biggest black uh, American comedians. And then um, it didn't get made for some reason. And well, for some reason. And then eventually it was a Ben Stiller vehicle. And you go, that's kind of like the opposite of what it started out as. And Eddie Murphy's in it, but he's sort of going through the motions and it's just kind of like a very tedious, boring film. Uh, so I tried to get into the cinema. They wouldn't let me take my guitar in. And I was like, fine, so I had to lock it up because I guess they thought I was going to start playing my guitar halfway through the film. <laughs> then I came out and I still had hours and hours to kill. So I went back in and I watched Tintin, which again, I just was sort of underwhelmed with, but I was in sort of a bad mood. Then I checked into my hotel, went and did the gig, had the worst gig of my entire life where they, you know, I'd waited around all day to do it. I went in, the audience were just awful and then uh, who was the one that they like it was um uh raymond and mr timkins review yeah. they headlined great act people they hated me so much and then when raymond and mr timkins came on people treated it like it was the second coming of jesus and people were stood up giving it standing ovation so i saw one skinhead turn around at one point wiping tears of no, I don't even think laughter. I think it was like it resonated with him so much on an intellectual and personal level that it was just kind of like he just couldn't control how much he loved it. And he was just crying. And then I had this really awkward moment in the green room with Raymond and Mr. Timkins review where I was just there going, oh, that went really well. <laughs> and they, they were convinced I was the shittiest comedian that they'd ever seen. And then you go back to you. So I, I associate those films with like a real bad weekend. 
Um, and I haven't seen Tintin since. So maybe I've misjudged it, but I didn't, I didn't love it. I understand but... why people wouldn't love it, because it has got that... I mean, I think it deals with a lot of that, what, that uncanny valley stuff well by making them kind of feel like they're part human, part cartoon characters. Yeah, but also I think I grew up with Hergé's Adventures... Hergé's Adventures of Tintin! And then there was also the, um, the 90s um, Tintin cartoon, which I loved. Great cartoon. I thought, I thought the music was great in it. I thought um, the animation was great. And I think probably what I didn't... What I couldn't quite get my head around was the fact that... Um, You've, Tintin is sort of like very simple. I've got like a got a little model of Tintin dressed up as a cowboy on my bookshelf. Um, he's kind of like really stylized, and he's sort of like really like a, a beautifully realized uh, illustration. Yeah. And to throw that out and make everything sort of like photorealistic kind of felt like a bastardization of. I totally agree, and everything about it. I would, like, I love Hergé. I love that clean line um, comic art style. That's sort of my favourite thing, even within comics. I, I love that. That's my favourite thing to look at. And I think it's that it did throw that out, and I found a lot of the kind of stills from it before it came out in the trailer. Everything about it just made me go, God, it looks so ugly. Ugh, it looks horrible. And I, it just won me over. It's like you're saying about music and lyrics. Again, I don't know how good it is versus how much I assumed I would hate it versus how much I was like, oh, it's sort of charming. It's kind of, it works and everyone's very good in it. And there's lots of really nice moments and it sort of, it sort of picks the tone right. Um, but yeah, so I think there's a lot of that about it was that I was, it, it started in such a negative for me before I even saw it. And the, the fact that it sort of won me over at all, as soon as it did, I just was totally sold on it, just because it had gone from making a point of saying, oh, but it isn't a comic book, by the way, it's a movie. It's almost yeah. like it's, a, it's its own thing. And it felt like, oh, yeah, this is like the movie of Tintin. Well, I think there's so much baggage that you take into a cinema with you. And it's kind of like, I would, pro I would say that Tintin is a better film than American Dreams. Mm. But I've got fonder memories of American Dreams because I went with my dad. Um, it was, we went to, uh, probably on an orange Wednesday in the daytime in the week when I was unemployed. Um, and, I, you know, uh, I was with, you know, one of my favourite people on the entire planet, you know. And, um, and we had this, like, collective, what the fuck was that experience, you know? Whereas... I was miserable and on my own, <laughs> sandwiched between two kind of disastrous gigs and a bad experience all around. Um, so yeah, I, I think that I've got—I haven't really got fond memories of Tintin, but that's to do with what I was going through, uh, not like a personal problem, but like what the context of where and when and what I was doing when I saw it. Um, yeah, maybe I'll give it another look one time but I just feel like I've got so many films I haven't seen why would I go back and watch Tintin I mean that's like it's funny like in the absence of having new films to watch in lockdown I'm, I'm just entirely drawn to whatever I'm drawn to mm. and yet it's just one of those things that in my head for a while I've been going well I'd like to watch Tintin again 
So what did you think of E.T.? What version of E.T. did you see? The original. I'm not sure I've even seen the new version. Um, I I love it. I I think it's... I think in some ways I'm not as fond of E.T. as I am a lot of those other big 80s blockbusters. Except it's the total blueprint for it. You watch it and it's it's like an instruction of how you make those films. It feels exactly like like a total blueprint and it's like showing you like it feels like i could write a blockbuster movie if you watch et enough because it just tells you exactly how to do it and it actually frustrated me afterwards because i thought the idea that people still get it wrong yet for years this basically tells you how to do it i think it's sort of like a very perfect example of that um sort of family friendly one um and it's it's everything's very clear in that, in it's unlike something like Star Wars. In comparison to Star Wars, Star Wars is all over the place, but ET is such a kind of consistent story, and tells you all the beats to do. All the emotional beats just feel like that's exactly how you do it. That's well, how you tell the family. Everything feels like the screenplay is also like neat and in like a line tells you so much about all the characters are and things and. Star Wars is such a specific story and it is obviously it's not an original story because it's based on fairy tales and you can exchange everyone for like oh there's the farm boy there's the princess there's the wizard you know uh, there's the knight and you can exchange you can exchange all of that stuff so it's kind of like it's not necessarily a blueprint but it's kind of like if you put loads of spectacle in a movie and do it this way then there you go. But whereas you can transpose elements of ET, and you can kind of like go, you can, yeah, like you say. I mean, uh, you can you can lift. I mean, you know, like uh, what was that one? The Shape of Water. That's sort of a variation on that kind of ET structure, isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, and that won Oscars, and it's kind of like there's not an original bone in The Shape of Water, and um, uh, and, and yet. If you just reskin ET, you can kind of like, you know, Mac and Me. That was a remake of ET. It's like the the joke I had in my stand up about Free Willy of someone calling it it's uh, ET only more realistic. Yeah. What about that? Went, but it is too. Like it's not when when I did, you think it is right though. They're not wrong. That is what that film is. Pretty much the same ending. Yeah. Like, it's like, um, but the difference is, uh, so originally in E.T., when the kids were escaping at the end, they were cycling off, and they had, the police had shotguns, and then they CGI'd uh, walkie-talkies into all of the police guys' hands later on, because they didn't want to put shotguns in a kid's film. And they also CGI'd his face so that he was more articulate, and he blinked more. Um, so there's sort of like a, a more updated, sort of like Steven Spielberg did a George Lucas on on E.T., but um, I haven't really seen the newer version. I haven't got, really got any bad memories of E.T., I just, um, it's just not one of my favourite films. No. But it was, like, the number one movie of all time for a long time, and I think a lot of people would say it's Steven Spielberg's best film. The sequence that I guess happens about midway point with the, um, the dissecting the frogs is perfect, where it's cut in between E.T. and Elliot's house and Elliot trying to dissect the frog at school it's brilliant and of course it's got drew barrymore in it of course it does we've come we've come full circle we have come full circle that's fan club we will come full circle later why 
We'll see. We'll see, Nick. Okay. Okay. Oh, now I'm interested. I was just going to plod through the next hour, but no, I'm interested. <laughs> All right, we'll do some fan mail. Well, um, that I should. We should point out that we've been told that in Estonia, despite being 129, we're still beating Ricky Gervais, Seth Meyers, and Adam Buxton in the podcast charts. I've always said that we're better than Ricky Gervais and Seth Meyers and Adam Buxton. Yeah, that's proof. Always said that, and finally, Estonia are proving us right. Thanks, <laughs> Estonia. I won't shout you out on Twitter this week because I'd hate to plummet to 212. <laughs> okay, fan mail. Hello, my boys. Another week of crying in the pantry, but your show lifts me up. I'm looking forward to re entering society, but think I've got a bit feral during lockdown. I can't wait to do a bikini trim. Have you been shaving during this time? Rain. Um, no. Oh, yeah, I, I maintain, I try and maintain my, uh, uh, my, what, what would you call that? A beard? Is it a beard? Stubble. Stubble. But people would call it a beard, but they're wrong. Mm. It's stubble. Oh, that's I'm, I'm going to shave later. Um, and my face. Hi! Uh, hello, Nick and Nat! I, oh, I'll do another voice. Hello, Nick and Nat! I heard your thoughts on the cuntiness of five foot nine people last week. I'm five foot nine and can confirm that I am a cunt. Have a lovely wave, George. Thanks, Thanks George. Uh, more proof, if ever there is any needed, that five foot nine people are cunts. Hi, Nick and Nat. I've just. <laughs> Hi, Nick and Nat. Just watch the Netflix version of Fifty Shades of Grey called 365 Days. I think that is the biggest pile of shit ever. Have you watched it? What are your thoughts on it? Your dear fan club friend, F.O. Um, I've not seen it. Not seen it. Hi, guys. I've just watched the episode of Star Trek with Mick Fleetwood. This got me thinking about how good a film about the making of Fleetwood Mac's rumours would be. What musician would you like to see a biopic of? Would Nick be interested in playing Alice Cooper in one? Keep going, dudes. Greg Martins. Um, I didn't know Mick Fleetwood was in an episode of Star Trek. I didn't know he was in an episode of Star Trek, but do you know he's in the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, The Running Man? Is he? Yeah, he's the guy that gets his uh, neck um, bomb off. When he escapes from the prison and he's got, like, this metal bomb around his neck, Mick Fleetwood's the guy... Mick Fleetwood is the mastermind of the underground uh, society. He's the guy that goes, you have to get in there, whatever his name is. He's the butcher of Bakersfield. Oh, is What's his name? Is it... Is it Richard... Is it Richard Dawson? No, Richard Dawson is the actor that plays the bad guy in it. And I know that because Richard Dawson was also the name of my headmaster when I was at school. So um, I can't remember what his name is in Running Man, but um, uh, yeah, yeah, Mick Fleetwood is uh, <laughs> the head of the underground resistance in Running Man. I don't want to play any musicians. I, like, I do like a music biopic, though. I can watch any number of them. Big fan of any uh, musical biopic films. I, oh, yeah. I wonder who's going to play me. In my biopic. Is biopic? Biopic. Um, uh, Dear Nick and Nat, I've seen some clips from your show. You guys look good. I really like your lockdown stars. Have you got any tips for being in quarantine and still looking bang? She is Mary. 
No, just keep living your best life, I think. Um, yeah. yeah, just... Alright, fine, Mary. Whatever. I th- I th- but you know what, Mary? Just as you are. <laughs> just as you are. Heineken, that. I've recently watched this Netflix series with Sasha Baron Cohen called The Spy, and I really liked it. Have you watched it? What are your thoughts on Sasha Baron Cohen? I think he's a great actor. I think he's a great actor. He's very good, yeah, I like him a lot. I don't like everything he's done, but I like enough of it to rate him quite highly. Hello, you lovely boys. I've heard that your chart podcast is quite high up in my... Oh, fucking... Thanks for bringing that up. You know, your podcast be on the top of the charts, and it should be, could be, if Nick learns how to say cunt in 50 different languages. What do you think? Thanks, Alicia. Do you know what? Alicia, finally, it's the first non-bullshit piece of fan mail that we've ever had. I'm going to do that. I'm going to learn how to say cunt in 50 languages, and then next week I am going to fucking blast it out and see how many uh, more people we can get to tune in. Right, so... um, uh, anything more to add, Nathaniel? No, I think we're good. Okay, let's go to a song, and then we're going to get our very special guests to come along and join us. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. We're back! Join! We're back in the studio! Here's me, I'm Nick Helm, and I'm joined with uh, Nathaniel Metcalf. And we're joined in the studio live directly from our own homes uh, by uh, the man who needs no introduction, Mr. Johnny Vegas! Hello! Am I right, Miss? How are you? I'm all right. Yeah, you're right. I've just asked that. I'm sorry. I'm nervous. Um, yeah, it's good. You don't, do ner- you don't do nervous. Nah, not 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 really. It's all an act. Um, uh, have you met Nat before? No, very briefly at your gig. But that was it, I think. At your gig at Christmas, was it last year or the year before? Two years ago, yeah. What, next gig? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, but that... Yeah, no, I would it got a bit messy, so I'm allowed to sort of... <laughs> did it, or did I get messy? Probably. Was, the I whole know. thing is... A, it's, a, it's called Fuckfest, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's meant, yeah, to, it's meant yeah. to get messy. Do you know what? You were on brand. It's absolutely fine. Um, we were grateful that you turned up. Um, so, uh, how have you been in lockdown? Uh, all right. It's been weird, and it's an hard one to talk about, because you sound like you're being sort of really self-righteous, but... For a lot of it, at the start of it, I was out doing the... I was I was out delivering with the Steve Prescott Foundation. So it was just like having a, a nice job that was outside the social... You know, the sort of showbiz bubble. So I was doing that and the PPE sourcing and everything else. So I, I really only feel like I've done... Everything's wound down now, so I feel like I've done two weeks of normal lockdown. Was that because yeah. you were at a loose end? Did it just feel like you, you wanted something to do as well? Yeah, yeah. It was, and I, I, I keep saying this, but I've got a 16-year-old who just, he honestly, he just developed a look of, you know that kid at the end of the boys from Brazil? <laughs> I was just like, oh, thank God we don't have Dobermans because he'd set them on me. He just, he started to look a bit evil. <laughs> of, you know, just the two of us in lockdown together. <laughs> sure. 
He's gone back to his mum's now. So, yeah, it was... Um, so you literally did... So two weeks of it did my head in. Once I didn't have anything to do. But I have... The house is a mess, and I've been, I have been doing, like, loads of work around the house that's been outstanding, because I'd never get this amount of time back in St. Helens again, so... So you've done some outstanding DIY? I have, mate. I'll tell you what, later on, if you look at it, I'll show you where I've hung my chopper. Well, I, well. I've, 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 I've put a ceiling-mounted bike rack up, and I, I, I quite like it. I'm, I'm, I think I've not done a bad job, and I've been putting loads of pictures up and stuff around the place. So are you cycling? All this, all this has got mounted since lockdown. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. Well, like, I put up a shelf yesterday, this shelf here. Hey. And oh, that would do, yeah. I put up some shelves uh, with my dad yesterday up there. Yeah, I've done loads of DIY. Yeah, I wouldn't say did it's outstanding. Did he help you or did he just, like, stand back in that disapproving, what have I raised? No, he's a control freak, so I would actually have to sort of, like, fight him off so that I could actually do any of it. But he's in, he's in his mid-70s, so it's just, like, there's a lot of guilt involved by just standing back and watching your dad... <laughs> put your shelves up for you. It was a difficult job as well, because uh, the angle of the shelves that we took down that we also put up was so off that just stuff kept rolling off them. Anyway, uh, we've nailed it. Well, we screwed it, but, like, we nailed it. It's, uh, it's, uh, the, uh, you, you'll have to Mate. come around and look at my shelves one day. They this is what they need to know. I've, I've got that, I've got architrailing, and it isn't, it runs at a funny angle, so either the picture looks off. If I run it, you know what I mean? Yeah. From there, it looks right from there, but it doesn't look right next to another object. Yeah. Turning me apart with my OCD tendencies. But my walls aren't even. So you put something flat yeah. against the wall, and the wall is sort of like bulging in and out. It's just absolutely crazy. I don't know. This is why you get other people in to do it, and you pay them good money to make it look right, but... You know, in these COVID times, you've just got to sort of do it yourself, I suppose. And that's what I've been making the most. Don't worry about me and my shelves, Johnny. I've been, I've been making the most out of it. No, I, listen, listen, okay, we might not be making BAFTA winning radio here, but I think it's stuff that needs to be discussed. Let's get it off our chests. We're just getting warmed up, mate. We're just getting warmed up. It's a big like, obsession, isn't it? It's like, what do you put in the background? I'm, I'm, I'm really impressed with that, just going for the bird room where he's like, you've gone for the Teddy weight. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't seen you rather then, and I thought you were chained to a radiator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm trying not to reveal anything about myself. I'm trying not to reveal yeah, Well, there's Nick's going, oh, what best, what best, you know, says, who am I? Three guitars at background, a thermometer, is that a thermometer on the wall? It is, a thermometer. <laughs> the worst thing about that, though, is it's an anal thermometer. I mean... How, it... how old are you? <laughs> um, well, My dad used to have one of them on the wall. Yeah, but... All right. I've got a cat... I've got a... Hinting at the family to get by my barometer for Christmas. I've got a... I might need a jacket. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with having a thermometer in your living room, all right? I think um, there is. I think, I think unless you've got Alzheimer's, you can tell whether it's hot or cold. Well, I can tell you exactly how warm it is. I've never used it. I've never actually looked at the thermometer to find out how warm it is. What it is, 
Oh, well, you, you don't want your guitars warping, do you? Um, no, I suppose not. I suppose it's it's got what it is is I've got a cat. <laughs> well, you know, you came you came around my living room in my old place. I've got a cowboy themed living room, right? And yeah. I basically just looked for stuff that had cowboys on it, right? So I went through all the stuff, salt and pepper shakers. Uh, in uh, your living room? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've got like an open plan living room. So I've got a ta- I've got a wagon wheel coffee table. I've got another wagon wheel coffee table. I've got antlers on the wall. You've got, got like a porcelain, like Mexican hat that you put crisps in. Yeah, I've got a, uh, a, a sombrero. Sombrero. That you put nachos in, and then you put cheese or, or salsa in the middle. I won't lie, and I'm not being mean, though. Like, you say, you know, three dates in, and you said to me, do you want to come back mine for coffee? If I walked in and I saw one wagon wheel table, you know, and you go, oh, he's quirky. If I saw the second one, I'm like, get me an Uber. Yeah, <laughs> but they're different. One of them is a wagon wheel, and the other one has got wagon wheels on the side instead of legs, Johnny. Oh, right. So oh, I haven't, like, just doubled up my wagon... It's not like I've got, like, massive mixing desks in my fucking living room. I've just got... I've got one wagon wheel, and then I've got a couple of wagon wheels over there, right? And corrected. All right. I haven't, I haven't really... The thermometer was when I just... Uh, I ran out of stuff with cowboys on that I needed, and so I bought a thermometer because it had a cowboy on it. <laughs> I put it on the wall, and it's a piece <laughs> of art. Maybe it's my thing. I, I, it's like running out of gifts, in it, for relatives. I bought my brothers because they're both big on sheds. I bought them thermometers for the sheds. But I don't think I'd allow one in my living room. Well, I mean... I think I, I, think I trust my instincts. This is what's absolutely bullshit about lockdown, all right? If we were in the studio right now, you wouldn't be judging me on my living room. We wouldn't even be talking about it, right? But just because you can see everything behind me, and I'm only at this angle, Johnny, because if I was here, then the light would be bleeding in, and you wouldn't be able to see me properly, all right? All right, I've very carefully placed three items. We we know what I'm up to. I'm trying to look cultured. If you saw my kitchen, it's a man who's given up on life. But then that that is part of what... When you're at home all the time... You're just constantly making a mess and then clearing up after yourself. And then eventually you just think, what's the point in clearing up? Because I'm just going to make more yeah, mess. Well, I have to cook fishing again, so I'm just thinking, all I'm doing is growing maggots. Growing maggots? Wow. Yeah. Well, you don't grow them, do you? You don't plant them. <laughs> you, just, just, you just leave the meat out to fester. Well, that's nice. I've got two... Honestly, God, if I went to now, I've got two slices of black pudding. That should provide a good yield. That is... Oh, yeah, good. Well, OK, you're making the best <laughs> out of a terrible situation. That's fantastic. It's not, Nick. I've come in here. It's, it's, it's not trying to turn. It's a cry for help. No. No. Right, so you're doing this gig with Just the Tonic, right? Yeah. What's this gig that you're doing? With Daryl. I'm not quite sure what I'm doing yet, because I did a little bit. He said he was doing this... It, basically, like, it's online stand-up, but it's not stand-up. And I... I'm not one to prep, and you know I don't really have gags, but the other week we were messing about, and be, 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 before he abandoned me, my son put this massive form head on, and we had this little gag about it being Johnny Jr. He turned out, you know what, he was really good at mine, because he had a massive form head on of me, and looked just as miserable as he has done during the rest of lockdown. Um, 
And he just said, why don't you come on and do the full show? So I, I'm not entirely sure. I think it's like a green room and it's chat. And I don't know if it's any different to what we're doing now. But I said, if he, if he wants me to go out with the four med, I'll, 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 I'll get my lad back up here and film some sketches, which I've never done before. Well, some of the details that say it's on Saturday the 11th of July and it's their fifth live stream event. Uh, it's not stand-up, but it's comedians doing stuff. So it's Jonathan Pye, Lucy Beaumont, Tom Binns, and Daryl's hosting it himself, by the look of it. Yeah, brilliant. Um, That's Daryl won't go into his usual meltdown, will it, that he does with a live audience? <laughs> we won't get any of that. I don't know why I bother. Um, <laughs> I love it when a crowd pushes him to that point. <laughs> I haven't seen Daryl in ages. I could be talking out my vinyl. <laughs> I haven't seen Daryl in ages. I get a message from him every so often, and... Um, yeah, and I'm never available to do his gigs, but I mean, I've died so badly at Just the Tonic. Have you? Have you? Yeah, have but you, I've also heard some amazing gigs. I'm not just saying it. You're like one of my favourite comics. Well, thank and you I, very much. I, I would imagine them being very open to your unique and very entertaining style of anarchy. I did a gig at Just the Tonic Nottingham once. Um, I've also had good gigs at Just the Tonic. I yeah. did a gig at Just the Tonic Nottingham once, where I was in the... Uh, I came off stage and I was in the green room, and um, everyone was just chatting to me in the green room for ages and ages and ages. I couldn't quite work out why I wasn't allowed to leave the green room. And it turned out there were people waiting to beat me up outside. <laughs> <laughs> they just... They didn't want to worry me about it. They were just like, oh, yeah, so what are you... Have you, have you booked into your hotel yet, Nick? And it was just like, oh, don't... This is very small talky. <laughs> uh, they were just hiding me from the truth, which is... They hated me. <laughs> I, did, I, did a, I did a corporate like that years ago, and I hate corporate. You know what I mean? The corporate gigs is like, we're paying you enough to ignore you. And I, I hadn't done any TV, so I wasn't known. And it was... It was uh, Microsoft, massive. They had 7,000 employees. They got them all hammered. And you know the bit we got? Oh, just give them a fancy dress do and let them cop off with each other. They had the potter's wheel and they went, they went, the guys had this guy and he was a proper classic, like, hey, yeah, yeah, um, um, do 15, you know, but uh, do 25, that'd be super. Squeeze 40 out of it, we'll be friends forever. And literally, and you know them gigs where you haven't messed up? It's not like I went out and yeah, yeah. tried that, in our That's every it's, bad gig I've ever had. Every bad gig I've ever had is not my fault. Oh, no. I, 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 I owe my hands up to the ones that are my fault. No, nah, I am officially saying right here and right now that I am not responsible for any bad gig I have ever had. It's always their fault. I'm not one of them no. comedians that says it's, 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 it's your fault if the audience don't like you. It's their fault. Well, you know what you've got, don't you? What? Five years, five years in, and still an open spot of Titus. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Well, when you get these open spots, and they're still open spots five years down the line, and when they're brilliant, they were genius, and when they're bad, the audience was shit. Absolutely, that's exactly what I'm saying. But I don't know what that means in terms of me being an open spot. In some words, you've nailed what I meant. Well, I was three minutes into this gig that he wanted me to try and squeeze forty out of them. When we kept round my ankles on a potter's wheel singing uh, Love on the Rocks. And it just walked across me on the stage. They had barriers. There were people wanting to kill me. 
and he just walked past and did that to the DJ, the music cut. I pulled my pants up, I left the stage, realised I'd left my jacket, and they thought I was trying to do an encore. Here's why I would watch the point. the barriers over to get to me, and I was like, I just want my coat. <laughs> it just never feels like they would want a comedian in any of those situations. No. It's like, why no. put some music I, on, put a band on? They'd been drinking since lunchtime. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was eight yeah. at night. Nobody knew who I was. It was like one PR guy. Well, I got my bone back because I wasn't dressing, but me, me, me mate, me tech, Jets, had gone round and got as much free booze as he could fit in his bag. And I played it out like that. I thought the gig had gone really well. So this PR rep came in going, ooh. And I'm like, well, that was great, wasn't it? You know, any reaction's a good reaction. <laughs> and they sent their boss it. Anyway, long story short, I was in my me, me agents going, right, we're suing Microsoft, they don't want to pay us. And their argument was, I was drunk. And I went, no, I play a really good drunk. And they went, no, he was really drunk. And you go, we'll prove it. <laughs> but your employees were a bit overreacting, you know what I mean? It was literally, I hadn't even got to the mic and I was being told to F off. Yeah. It makes it worse that it's Microsoft because they can't even be like, <laughs> they haven't really got the money. Yeah, I know, I know. You're going, I want, I want to. I, and I think basically, whichever PR company set it up, it was Game of Thrones. Somebody's head would have to roll. <laughs> but, the, the, but those for corporate gigs... Up, for booking us. Those corporate gigs, uh, I always find like the, the further you have to uh, travel for them, the worse they are. I did, um, I did a corporate gig. Ah, I think it was in... I think it... I think again, it was sort of it was in the Midlands, and it was with Josh Widdicombe and Milton Jones, and uh, they'd been we were meant to be on at nine, <laughs> but we ended up going on at about eleven, and they were hammered. And I'd done I'd just yeah. done I'd just done a pilot for Heavy Entertainment, uh, and so what I did was I did I took all my costume from Heavy Entertainment, and I did all the material from the pilot of Heavy Entertainment, which got commissioned by the BBC. So I knew it worked, and, yeah. I did, and, I, and so I had like this uh, tearaway stripper trousers, tearaway stripper top, and I did sort of like two songs, I did some poems, I did one-liners, I did some stories. It's 20 minutes. Josh goes out. They've been drinking for about 12 hours. Josh goes out. They, they just start booing him and talking over him and everything. And you go, well, they're too drunk for comedy, but Josh is doing mainstream stuff. And then I go out. And they just hate me. And they take everything that's ironic at face value. Yeah. Um, they're booing me, shouting at me, holding up, like, the flyers, saying, this says four stars on the flyers. And I don't know why they put our reviews in the fucking audience. So this says <laughs> four stars on the flyers. This is, this is one star. This is absolutely appalling, right? They were, like, all entitled, all shouting at me, and it was horrible. And there was a moment just before I had to do my stripper trousers and get down to my pants that I thought, should I or shouldn't I? And I thought, well, it, this might change the gig for me. They might love me. So I had like this, this might be the thing that saves the gig. So I just tore away my stripper trousers and took off my top. And I was just in my pants and cowboy boots on the stage. And they just went mental. They were just like, you're disgusting! You're disgusting! One man sort of like, he went, and he got up and he ran out of the room, right? And it was just like, I've done this on, I've done this on BBC Three. What are you? What are any of you doing? This is absolutely insane. 
Um, well, yeah, and so... You know, go on, sorry, go on. But after the gig, I came off stage and, uh, and the people that organised it wouldn't look at me, right? And it's just like, you booked me. I said, I said, if you want to book me, book me, but, but I'm not sure you want me. They insisted on booking me. I came off the stage. They wouldn't look at me. I sat in my dressing room uh, and I came back out to watch Josh compare. And then they said, uh, have you been in your dressing room? And I was like, yeah, I've been in the dressing room. And they go, would you like to see the car that you're going to go home in? And I was like, sure. So I went out and I met the driver, met the driver, came back to watch Josh on the sidelines. <laughs> um, and uh, they said, I don't think you understand. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, the person that organised this gig is so angry with you, he can't even look at you right now, right? So they made me sit in the fucking car while my phone was on. It was like, fuck it, I had to wait for Josh to finish the gig so that we could go home. Well, well that gig, that, that was what, exactly what they said to me, do it. We, we found an alternative exit. I went, what do you mean, do it? Well, uh, no need to rub salt into the wound, is there? <laughs> and couldn't let us leave through the main road. We did, but Dabble, just a tonic, we did one, and it was a medical student's gig, like ball, you know, and, uh, and they put us in a room, and it was the makeshift casino and buffet area. And it was, like, you know, a fashion walkway with a trestle and plastic flowers. And there were basically two people sitting down waiting to see any comedy. And one of them, he was like, he was like a 22-year-old rumpel of the Bailey. <laughs> <laughs> Do gags, will you be Do gags, And we all went like, sod it, you know what I mean? I don't want paying. I'm just, I'm not going out there capping on for this. So we all just chose a, a song from a musical. And the devil was comparing. I got very drunk very quickly. We stood behind this trestle, weighing in a plastic flower pot, and then went out and did, every time I look at you, I can't understand. <laughs> <laughs> and one ball and barely. If he'd have had a monocle, it would have popped out. <laughs> this isn't what we're Jesus Christ, Jesus. And I just looked over and Dabble was just like bent over, double laughing. And it was it was one of them where we're going, well, they, they, they put us in the, uh, you know, the cloak room. We're not going to get paid. Should we, should we nick some jackets? <laughs> <laughs> just, just to cover the petrol for getting here. Did you? You, know, you just have to write it off and go, look, we're on, we're, on, we're on to a loser here. We don't stand a chance. And I'm, honest to God, I'd go out to try and salvage a gig, but the ones like that, we just go, no. Can't like, Clint Eastwood in it, Unforgiven. Did I tell this story about that award ceremony I hosted, Nat? What was it for? I can't remember what it was for. I hosted an award ceremony in Manchester, and I had to be there all night. And there were huge tables of people in this ballroom. Everyone was hammered. No one gave a shit about the award ceremony. Yeah. And I had to host it sort of sincerely, right? Throw in some jokes. Why not? It was right at the beginning of my career. And um, at my career. And, uh, <laughs> and I was sitting there doing it. And it's this hey, long, well, like, well, well, that, that cart, you know, that, that Mexican chips dish wasn't going to pay for it itself, was it? Well, no. <laughs> All that money's gone. All the uncle money's gone. Um, so <laughs> I was... Uh, 
I was doing this, it was like a 30 page script of this award ceremony. And I, I kind of like ended up just kind of like going, right, if you win an award, everyone's got a clap. Doesn't matter if it's your team or not. Try to get everyone on board. And then it gets to the point where it, you, no one's listening, no one cares. So you sort of like end up being quite sarcastic about it and going like, oh, yeah. everyone, put your hands together because Tony from Supplies has won an award. <laughs> you know? And at least it was sort of like, might not have been the energy they wanted, but it was an energy, right? And it was in the Holiday Inn in Manchester. And at the end of the gig, I was sat at the bar and uh, it, was, it was awful. And this guy came up to me and he pushed me and he started on me and he said, hey, if I'd have won an award and you'd announce my name like that, I'd have fucking decked you. And I turned around to him and I said, yeah, but you didn't win, did you? <laughs> <laughs> and he went, what? And I went, you didn't win, did you? And he went, no. Do you oh. like football? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did one like that, and it was it was up at uh, not Crystal Palace, was it up in uh, North London? The, the anyway, and it was national networks of radio stations, you know, like all the regional radio stations. And it was owned by this one day, and there was a guy from Canada, and it, 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 Blue turned up, and one of them fell down the steps in rehearsals, and I fucking howled laughing at him. So Blue had fallen out with me. Blue. Talked to me, yeah, and then um, Blue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this this guy, I, I I should be able to remember his name. Maybe a bit of better story, but they were he's very particular about about your, how you pronounce his name. Well, you know me. Once Johnny's took over, I said his name twenty different ways other than how he wanted it. <laughs> I, but it was that was one of them nights actually. Everyone who came down got steamy. We had a really good night. And then at the end of the night, because it was like, look, it's for the employees, it's not for them. One guy got so excited, he did a swat as he bit me. <laughs> he actually grabbed hold of me and bit me really hard on the shoulder when he won. And that was our thing, the way they were going, uh, he's not happy with you. You know, it was basically on them, never darken our doorstep again. And you're going, oh, but biting's all right, is it? When the guy from Viking FM in York, yeah, taking a chunk out of my shoulder, that's okay. Just because I make a joke and getting his name wrong. It's, um, you know when um, you won the Perrier Award? I didn't win it, did I? But thank you for... You know when you got... Thank you, thank you. Dragging me back to a dark place. You know when you got nominated for the Perry Award? Yeah. Um, is that story about the Pringles pipe true? Yeah. But 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 not out of any... I don't take any pride in that, but it was the studio room at the, at the Gilded Balloon. And basically, I, I just had a massive thing of, like... I didn't like to be seen before the gig. I wasn't a good one, for, you know, for making... Having patter. And I was, I know it's hard, but I was waiting for sort of Johnny to take over. So when the music started, it was like, like I said in the book, it was like being put put under in a in a in a in a trance, like. And um, oh, it's nothing. But once you were in there and the audience come in, there was no toilet, there was nowhere to go. So Tommy T and had left the Pringles tube, and I just had to. 
have a shit in that. <laughs> the worst but, thing then, but then not wanting it to smell, I folded it down so it looked like one of the fun size, you know, the single packs. I'm just putting the lid on. But I do remember, I was later, I got in about half five in the morning, and then going, oh, I left it in there. Somebody is going to go in and go, ooh. <laughs> That's it, because Pringles do... I, I, I wonder if there's one at bottom. <laughs> I know well, it's a small pack, you know, but they might, you know, they might have left a few. Oh, that'll tide me over. <laughs> that'll hold the reflux at bay till after the gig. Pringles um, do actually hold the taste. That They do hold that smell in it when you've got the tube on. So when well, I, thought, fresh... I, I, I thought folding the cardboard in on itself and then putting the plastic on. Okay. Right, oh, well, it, here's the sad thing. I thought that's not a bad bit of like that's a, a tiny feat of human engineering. <laughs> a few years down the line, you go, you shit in the Pringles tube. <laughs> <laughs> that, but that sort of happened to me. <laughs> that sort of happened to me on my last tour, where I was backstage, and you don't want to go in front of the audience, you know. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm wearing these tiny sparkly hot pants. And I'm about to go on and do open with like an opening song. But I'm all like, you know, this is professional show business. And there wasn't a window or a toilet or anything backstage, and I needed a piss. So I pissed in a water bottle. And then two seconds later, I'm on stage entertaining a whole room full of people. But I was pissing in a water bottle like three feet away from the audience behind a door. Yeah. And, then, and then, you know, five days later, you go, what's this in my bag? And you find that you've got a bottle of piss that you haven't got rid of. You go, oh, yeah, I remember. I, I played, I won't mention the things because I don't want to get them in, in any bother, but, you know, when the... Because I got in so much trouble with the smoking. Because, you know, like, you could smoke on stage if it was pertinent to the performance that you were doing. Then one night, you know, you just realise that you're playing to, like, more than half your audience are smokers, and they're not bothered what you're saying because they're just watching you have a fag. So <laughs> I said, if anyone wants to join me on stage and, you know, you can all have a drag. And the manager went mad because it was like half the room just sat on the stage with us passing one <laughs> cigarette round. But I went to this other theatre and the guy went, he went, come in here. He said, look, turn a blind eye. We've not, we've, we've, we've done our best. And it was amazing. He had three different fans set up and an open window. And I swear to God, it was like, like if you sit here, and blow your smoke there, and the smoke went and out the window. <laughs> he went, just don't smoke any word else, blow it into that fan. We've been working on this all day. <laughs> and it's not big and it's not hard, and don't do it, kids. But, um, like I'm relevant enough that kids will be listening to this. I know my audience. Um, if they're not listening to you, Johnny, they're certainly listening to Nathaniel and I. We're very much in with the kids. Yes. Okay. Well, I was saying earlier about, like, I really love that stand-up DVD, um, Who's Ready for Ice Cream? I used to oh. watch it all the time. I think it's a proper, like, proper chronicle of something, and I, I love it. And well, then I... I almost like with that, Wanted to do a warts and all, you know, this this is the reality of doing stand-up, because whenever you do a stand-up DVD, they're in a theatre, and no stand-up starts out in a theatre. 
do that. You know what I mean? You mm-hmm. you play all them rough ass gigs and you you you, you, you carve yourself as you know not carve a slice, but you, you 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 carve out a career from it and that's why we shot it in the stand and we, we wanted the echoes in it. We wanted all the there's two of the lads in that there's two lads in the in, in, in the stand in Edinburgh who suddenly vanish because they moved them to the back and I didn't want to move to the back. And then they beat each other up, blaming each other. <laughs> for who got them kicked out of the gig? But you know, my friend, Tony Burgess in that is amazing. Oh. oh. And it feels like you know, so often it feels like sort of an incredibly like quotable piece of work. And I forget, because it's a DVD, you sort of forget it hasn't been on telly and people haven't really seen it. But it's such no, a kind of piece of work. And I'm, I'm, I'm honestly, I hate watching myself back, but there, there are bits of that. I think, because it was a, like an ensemble thing as well with Tony Pitts and Tony Burgess and everyone. The bit in the street were, and he was a real ice cream man. So they took us out in the street and the crack was, they dressed us in this like onesie, before onesies were a thing, <laughs> and making us dance you know, for the crowds up in Edinburgh. And Tony Pitts has been so brutal with me and hitting me. And all the crowd have just stood round clapping as I'm being forced to dance. <laughs> and the whole thing is, is like, I don't want to do this. I shouldn't have to be here. And there's just one... If you watch it really carefully, there's a guy with white hair and there's just one guy clapping going, this is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but everyone else is just going... Johnny Vegas dancing in a onesie. And that man keeps hitting him. I think that you... Um, I can't remember what year it was. Maybe it was 97 or 98. But I think that you married two of my teachers on stage one of those years. Really? I've just that, remembered. It would be 97, because in 97 I had the potter's wheel. Right, yeah. I don't know, because no, you know what? I had the potter's wheel... It might have been 98. I, did, I made that classic mistake, went up, did the potter's wheel, worked really well, thought I need something new. Was that 1999? Basically, I, at one point, I did that. What is it with comics in Edinburgh? Stand up simple. You stand there, don't you? You tell gags. If you showed us well, the next year you go, I better go on multimedia, I need slides. <laughs> I need other stuff. To, you know what I mean? I need to come back with something bigger, stronger. Show them I'm ready for TV. Show them that I understand multimedia. Yeah. I, I swapped the potter's wheel for a lathe. And it was... <laughs> <laughs> it was the dullest thing ever. Because it, it was like 25 minutes of the act, and all you had was a slightly misshapen piece of wood <laughs> that you couldn't even look at because there was a guard over it. <laughs> So it's just me talking over the really noisy, and now to show for the, at the end of it, and you go pushing comedy forward. And that involves a chisel and uh, fast spinning wood. It's not like soft like clay. I mean, no, that's it just didn't draw anybody in. They're going, <laughs> what, 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 what's he making? Like a giant chess piece, or uh, he's been at that for ages. <laughs> and then I had this really bad. I did a thing about subliminal advertising, so I just had all these these uh, 
This made me look really needy of a uh, Perrier win Vegas. When you start, I, I, I think in 97, where there was, I was so naive because I was, I was gigging in Nottingham and I, like Malcolm Hardy took me under his wing, do you know what I mean? But, but largely, I was gigging in the northwest, and I'd, I'd sort of started out in my hometown at the Citadel, so I didn't really know how things worked. So you go up there with, with accidentally, you know, if it's a unique show or whatever, I, I didn't understand the politics, and then it's, it's when you go up to Edinburgh with an agenda that you just make a titty yourself. Keep it simple. Keep it as to what you do. It's it, it's like Dave Gorman. There's people like Dave. I always like Dave Gorman because he writes specific shows for festivals. You know what I mean? Mm. But it works and it makes sense. But when you stray out of your own comfort zone, you you can't half get it <laughs> horrendously wrong. Yeah, yeah. It's when you try and sort of like second guess what other people are looking for, or you try and sort of like second guess. You know, yeah. Um, what is? Uh, well, you know what? Sorry to interrupt. That is exactly it, mate. It's the. It's when you second guess, and you think afterwards, after the fact, you go, "Well, I think all my favourite comics are people who are almost like they're talking to themselves at a bus stop, and you are interloping. They're not coming out and saying, "Please like me." It's like they're in their world, and you're invading it. So yeah. why do you then change your act to go, hey, hey, I'm here, and I'm just as good as the last time. Please like me. There was, I, there was a comedian we knew who um, he did the same jokes for, like, five years, but he'd cut his hair, he'd start wearing a suit, <laughs> he'd wear a muscle vest, you know, and it's just, the only thing he never changed was his, his, it was his material. <laughs> and it's just like you go, it's not your fucking haircut that people don't like. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> But that's like, no, all, that's like all, collection of straws. That's like, well, it can't be me. It's yeah. got to be something I'm doing. Or you've got to be that good, like like Malcolm had it. You know, the fact that Malcolm did the same seven gags every week when he compared. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, but it became a thing. You know, he made it. Ace, that like, you know the punchlines, you know what's not coming. And it actually takes a really good comedian to get away with that. Yeah. But, like say when when you see an open spot five years down the line and they've not once thought of going home and tweaking <laughs> or looking at the material. Mm. I think in Edinburgh as well, it's like theme shows, but it's not even about a thing that they know about. They've just decided it's going to be about this this yeah. week. It's like, what, what what do you know about that? But they've written well, it out. It's that thing in it. Uh, uh, you've got to give them the title for the show. Yes. <laughs> advanced to have your posters printed <laughs> and then three months down the line you've totally changed your mind about what you want to do but you've somehow <laughs> got to pull it back to what the printers have got so that's keep always, it that's but that's always helped me that's always been kind of like, i come up with a title and i go right that's the show and then i just stick to that and then i don't right. have to then i don't have to worry about what i'm doing i just like go right i've called it dare to dream it's going to be about dreams and then you just spend six months writing jokes about dreams, and then you know you get nominated. <laughs> You're a better writer. I just got—I don't know. I just said something to get him off my back. 
What, in terms of There's nothing on this subject to talk about. Was it Stuart Lee that did uh, King Kong versus King Dong? <laughs> I don't remember. And I think he gave him it out of frustration. Then his poster got banned, which was really good for his show. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, I think he said, like, I figured that within that, I could write about whatever I wanted because... <laughs> <laughs> really? No, what question is There was no mention of King Dong anywhere in that show. I mean, it's not particularly. It's not. It's not a particularly flexible title. No, I think it was a massive dildo on the poster. That's what. Really <laughs> <laughs> King um, Dong. So, when was your when was your first Edinburgh? Uh, Ninety-five, and again. Totally naive, I went up and did So You Think You're Funny. Mm. Which is weird, because I, I totally disagreed with this idea of judging comics, you know, making them compete with each other. And I was sponsored, Bev, who works for me, my best mate and long-suffering assistant, her sister had a tanning salon, and she gave me 100 quid. And I went up and stayed with mates in Glasgow, and I, I did my heat. We got through. We, there was a... A bread van delivering, we nicked bread the following morning waiting for the first train back. But then got so chuffed at getting through the heat, a blooming money. Got there on the night. Don't call sober, absolutely. Eddie Azad was comparing, Lee Matt was it fan. I didn't know anyone because I largely gigged out with St. Helens. I honestly, you know what I mean? At that point, I wasn't gigging anywhere in the country. And um, they went berserk because I, I nicked Eddie's, Eddie's rider. I nearly had four beers. I sat at Lou and I drank them. And I went out. <laughs> and it was the the disaster of all disasters. And not like, because you were sticking to your guns. I'm, I, I, it's the only time I ever, I made some notes on her. And I went out and I just fell apart. I went out as Mike Pennington and not as Johnny. And I pulled this out and I actually said at one point, I went, uh, I'm not reading material. I said, it's a letter off my mum. And I threw it on and I thought, you've just turned into Jimmy Cricket. <laughs> <laughs> and I sped read it and I actually had to ask for the note back. <laughs> so if you can imagine 20 seconds in a comedy final of people looking for a scrunched up piece of paper and handing it to me. <laughs> I think that's funny. And it was just, it was the same thing. It was just like, you know, then gigs where nobody just has anything to say to you because they don't know where to start. Mm. They don't want to tell you just how bad you were. <laughs> but there's just that look of them of going, oh, what if, it's like, <laughs> what if it's a comedic version of leprosy? What if I catch something off him? I, mm. I just... Tell us, about, that... tell us about that Live in Benidorm DVD. Because that's one, when you watch it, you go, I mean, everything's going on. It feels like oh, you're right. firefighting. But what about that guy who was having an affair with his secretary and his daughter? <laughs> He sat the front row. <laughs> then he went mad that I broke up his marriage. I'm in the middle of material about how washing machines open. If they open from left to right, they're made in Germany. If they open right to left, they're made in Spain and they're not as good. Got into a conversation with him and he went, we've advertised it. It's a live recording of a show. Who, who's having an affair, goes to a live recording of a DVD and sits near the front. It feels like such a, again, it feels like a gig that just, it genuinely feels like a proper gig, but it's like, 
It's just the audience just walking onto stage, walking past. Oh, no. That's incredible. Doesn't feel like a recording at all. <laughs> I find it fascinating. Like, when did this happen? How's this happened? <laughs> well, without tell, trying to sound pompous around, I think my thing, because to me, that, that was my least favourite one we did, and it was, it felt <laughs> the most polished. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of trying to have a structure, but without sounding like an arsehole, it, it must have ended up going, uh, I think you stand up, it's that, by the point you can make a DVD, it sounds like I've arrived. You know, hi, and, and again, it's in a theatre where people are behaving themselves, aren't they? If you think the amount of people who wouldn't ordinarily go to a theatre, but they go to a theatre to watch stand-up, but the minute they go in a theatre, they feel like they have to behave. So you lose the club vibe straight away. Yeah. It's almost like I've got to sit here and I've got to be, I've got to be. And whenever we had the opportunity to make a stand-up DVD, it was like, I want to try. Because you've got all them crap films out there, don't you? What's, you know the Tom Hanks one with Sally Fields? I'm saying. I'm saying. Oh, God. Doesn't it just make you want to self-harm? It's fucking awful. It's got no to do with the reality of being a, a stand-up whatsoever. And and so, I think, with, with, without trying to sound too earnest around, I, I wanted to document what stand-ups really like, rather than a, hey, look at me, haven't I done well for myself? Mm. And that was reflected in the sales. <laughs> <laughs> and so, do you regret that approach? No, no. Do you know what? I had fun. I only said, I was on about this the other day with somebody. It was the same with the book. When I wrote the book, it was like, I don't want to write, uh, hey, haven't I done well? And it turned into a really cathartic experience writing it. And I didn't expect it to go that way. But And I ended the book in 97 because I was like, I've split. My son's at a certain age. I don't think the stuff he needs to be reading about. And I don't want people just going to chapter 13 to get the... But it was more interesting about how Johnny Vegas developed as a alter ego, but they did, just didn't know how to market it. They didn't know how to market it, and it did really... So I was getting all this feedback going. It's been the, one of the best-reviewed books. I'd have left it... Because, you know, Tesco's have to approve the cover. Oh, look at you. It's an awful cover, though, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it is, it is, it is. We had more arguments over that. And they were, um, or oh, the picture of like the one that's meant to be me is Johnny. Uh, oh, what's the word? You use this word and you got, nobody said that word since 1940. <laughs> it's like just William or something. Is he a bit, what's the word? But they couldn't market it. And, it was a bit upsetting because you're going, well, creatively, I'm being told it's a decent read and all that. And I did. I worked, I worked my ass off on it. And then my wife at the time went, look, if you'd have had it ghostwritten and it would have been a massive success, it would have destroyed you more than it not selling. You know what I mean? And you're not putting out the book that you want to yeah. tell the story that you want to tell. So it's one of them. And that did hurt me. I, I, I won't lie. It hurt me that they... they 
they couldn't quite get their head round that it was an honest account and not just the this is your life. But it's what it is. Yeah. I think I think it's art school. I think it's that thing where you go, you want to be original and you'll you'll sacrifice stuff along the way, won't you? Rather than says the man who sold a billion tea bags. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that's enabled you to do stuff that you really want to do, hasn't it? Yeah. Gets you freedom, hasn't it? No, it was it was it was good at the time because it did it paid for all the passion projects. It was simple. I just never knew it was gonna go as massive as it. You know what I mean? Yeah. That was the weird. That was the first time of walking down the street and getting that double look off someone. Like, should I know him? And I didn't. And yeah. then five years of people going monkey. <laughs> Where's your monkey? Anyway. Making this all about me. Come on, get back to a group chat. Uh, what's your favourite film? Not the Zoom therapy session. What's your favourite film? What's your favourite film? Case. Oh, I love it. The one thing I don't have to think about, Case. I have loads of it. I'm a proper movie buff, but but Case is is just by far. Now, Case is tragic. Right? It's a tragic film. Do you also find it really funny? Yeah, and again, honestly, no line at in the meeting previous. We've just been talking to a writer, and I went, It was sort of my yardstick for at what point in a relationship do you sit down with somebody and watch Kes with them? And you know, the the caning scene in Dead Masters Office, I find it hilarious, it's tragic, but I find it hilarious. And when you turn around and your partner's going, How can you laugh at someone like that? You're a monster. And you go, well, I've I've been in many a headmaster's office. I've been caned. I've been, do you know what I mean? And to me, there's just like a working class poignancy to it. I think there's such. A, I think it's such a funny film, but it's mixed with tragedy, and that's what makes it more funny. Because the bits that really make me laugh is the bit where he's trying to get the book out, and yeah. uh, and she says, "Oh, you, you can't read a book with dirty fingers," and, he, and she says, "I don't read dirty books." He's ever hot, you don't read. <laughs> And, uh, and the other bit that really makes me laugh is a bit where his brother is kicking in the stalls of the toilets and he kicks it in and he shouts to a kid who you don't see who's obviously on the toilet and he says to him, have you seen our Casper? And just uh, a kid, just you just hear a kid go, he's not in here. I <laughs> 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 uh, just think they're just really funny bits in this <laughs> film that people well, remember as being this super tragic film. If you go back and you watch the caning scene, You'd, you'd never get away with But I, for, I think it's that, like, Ken Loach, Mike Lee, I think if you watch that stuff and you get the tragedy, but you laugh, I think it massively informs what kind of comedy you want to do. Yeah. The funny thing about the- you don't You don't just want to deliver a gag. You want to go, let me take you through a thought process that put me in a position, you know what I mean, where this terrible thing happened and you're allowed to laugh at it, you know, because in a way it is funny, but at the time it was very painful. And and that caning scene, he told them, he said to the kids, like, he's going to swing, but he'll miss. And the guy in that scene playing the headmaster was a real teacher, and he went, go in and cane him for real. So that tall lad in the middle when he goes, oh, yeah, fuck. 
it's that. And it's the others laughing at their mates getting caned. No, I know, but the, the kid was like, please, sir, I've just brought a message. When he starts crying, you know it's for real because he's realised that they're all actually getting it. And you're going, he'd get done for that now, wouldn't he? <laughs> but you're going, he somehow managed to, and like, brilliantly recreate that thing of be, being in the and being in that situation of going, I don't know, it's, it's just... You gotta, because if people say like favorite song, this that, and you got God, I could agonise over this for this reason. What mood I'm in, whatever. But no, cares is just it's a it's a masterclass. And when I've if I've directed in the past, like casting kids is a really hard because you have so many without being like pushy parents who want to live through the kids and direct them before they come in, and. You're doing a scene about what do you want on your butties and they're giving it jazz hands. Spam! <laughs> and you go, you wouldn't answer a man like that, would you? You know what I mean? Sit on your hands and just be natural. And I think Ken Loach is one of the best at getting natural performances out of non-actors as well. Yeah. And I, 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 I love that kind of stuff. He's someone who's well cast a lot of comics, doesn't he? It, it sort of, it's surprising the amount of comics he has in his films, really. There must be yeah. something he sees in, in that. Yeah, but I, I, again, I think he just sees that some comics have that like, a proper deep humanity to them with observers. Yeah. I don't know about you, like, you know what I mean? But yourself, but you go, that was the hardest thing for me. After the ads and other stuff was, I used to love sitting in pubs watching people. I was a people watcher. I was a weirdo. And I think the first day you go in a pub and people are watching you and they weren't being themselves around you, I felt like I'd, I'd lost a proper link with the stuff that, you know, the naturalism and stuff that, that I love about folk mm. is when they're being them. Oh, he's deep. <laughs> well, on that note, we've got to the end of our hour... And um, uh, I, it's, uh, uh, you were just talking about observational stuff or something, so that's good. Now let's uh, get to the... We've got a game for you, Johnny. I have just talked, haven't I, solidly? I am so sorry. No, that's great. I hate, I hate doing these interviews over Zoom, and uh, you, you, you made that really easy. Thank you very much. Um, you're one of my favourite people, Johnny. Thank you for doing our show. You, you play, we're going to play a game with you now, all right? Okay. Okay. This game's called Better or Worse, and you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on oh. my own opinion. So you just oh. got to guess what I would think. So starting off with Goldie Horn. Goldie Horn. Is Matt Dillon better or worse than Goldie Horn? Worse. Better. Worse. Worse. No, I pulled it back in that film years later. <laughs> is Matt LeBlanc better or worse than Matt Dillon? Worse. 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 Is Simon LeBon better or worse than Matt LeBlanc? Worse. Better. Better, I think, yeah. Oh. Is Simon... No, I, 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 I met him, mate, and he was he was sound as a pound. Matt LeBlanc? He, he gave me a cigar case with two cigars in it. That's great, but Matt LeBlanc? High card. <laughs> Maybe. Simon Callow, better or worse than Simon LeBon? Worse. Worse. Yeah, worse. What's Simon Callow, the actor? Yeah. No, um, 
Oh, it's based worse. on Nathaniel's opinion. <laughs> yeah, um, probably, I think probably worse. Simon Cowell, better or worse than Simon Callow? Worse. Better. Worse. 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 <laughs> Malcolm McDowell, better or worse than Simon Cowell? Oh, better. Better. Robert Powell. Oh, hey, uh, big shout-out. Big shout-out. The Limey. He was brilliant in that. And, uh, was it Gangster number one? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a good film. Oh, yeah, it wasn't the Limey, was it? Sorry, I'm getting mixed up now. Yeah, it's that, that one. OK, go on. Robert Powell, better or worse than Malcolm McDowell? Oh. Uh, worse. Oh. I'd have to say worse because of the detectives. <laughs> yeah, I've forgotten about detectives. You're right, he's worse. Uh, Robert Pattinson, better or worse than Robert Powell? Better. Better, yeah. Worse. worse. What? Pattinson's worse than what? Powell. What? Uh, Robert Pattinson's worse than Powell. Uh, no. Robert Redford, better or worse than Robert Pattinson? Better. 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 And Rob Reiner, better or worse than Robert Redford? Better. Equal. Equal. Better, I think. Well, look at that. Rob Reiner, you think, is better than Robert Redford? Thank you, Mike. That's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, but the only thing with Robert Redford is, I actually watched, again, last night, The Castle. So, Rob Reiner has just... He's given Rob Reiner the edge. Sure. Well, you scored seven, Johnny. Uh, You're uh, not as good as Luke Morley with nine, uh, Susie Dent with eight, but you're equal with Henry Normal with seven. So, well done. Congratulations. Um, Thanks for coming to do our show. Uh, Lovely to talk to you. Don't really leave. We're just wrapping up. Um, So, that's goodbye from me. Thank you for coming on. That's goodbye goodbye from you. Thank you for coming on. Welcome to the clubhouse, Johnny Vegas. Come back on and do it in real life one day. Uh, I've been <laughs> Hill. This has been Nathaniel Metcalf. That was Johnny Vegas. See you next week, guys. You won't see us, you'll hear us. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.